0: It's good to see you all this morning. As we get started, I want to start with uh, talking about a a time in in the history of the world, which was known as the Age of Exploration. Now, this Age of Exploration lasted for a very long time. Uh, The last few places on Earth to be explored to have man set foot on was Antarctica and the South Pole. In 1908, there was an Irish explorer by the name of Ernest Shackleton, who came the closest to getting to the South Pole at that point in history? He was 97 miles short, which sounds like a lot, but considering no one had been within 100 miles of it, he was pretty close. However, because of the intensity of the weather in Antarctica, his crew had to turn back. In his diary, Shackleton wrote that the food supplies were exhausted, save for one last ration each of what's called hardtack. Hardtack is a dried biscuit that is rock hard and only when it's soaked for a a good amount of time in something liquid will it be even edible. The men melted snow and drank tea from tea leaves that had been used dozens of times. Many, however, took their hardtack and hid it in their food packs, waiting till the last moment when they would need that bite. The evening was cold. The fire was built up. The men were weary. They jumped in their sleeping bags to face yet another night of restless sleep as they were in between freezing to death and trying to sleep. Shackleton, as he was almost asleep, out of the corner of his eye noticed movement. He looked over and saw one of his most trusted men sitting up, looking around to see if anyone was looking. Shackleton's heart sank when he saw the man reach toward another man's food sack. Shackleton then watched as the man opened up the food sack and took his own hardtack out and put it in the other's sack. Shackleton went to sleep with warm thoughts towards this man. What Shackleton had witnessed is he had witnessed a man who was a good man in public and was also that same man in private. He witnessed a man of integrity. He witnessed a man who was the same both when people were watching and people were not watching. Today, this Psalm that Frank just read to us is all about the king. It's all about the king, the man who leads the nation of Israel. Now, we just celebrated the fact that we don't have a king here in the United States. Down with the king, right? July 4th. However, we do have leaders. And as a matter of fact, most of us are leaders in one way, shape, or form. And so today's psalm is about what our leaders are to be like, and then how we are to follow those leaders and imitate them as they imitate and they seek to rule like our heavenly king. This psalm is a psalm of David. It's about the ideal ruler, it's about the fact that this ruler needs to live as if he were acting like Jesus, as if he were God's representative on earth, because he was. So we're to model ourselves after this king as he models himself after the true king. So today we're gonna look at four points, and they'll be up several times on the projector. We're gonna see David's worship, We're going to see David's walk with the Lord. We're going to see David's workers, and we're going to see David's warning to all of us. So as we get into this, I need to tell you, there are multiple layers to this psalm. So lest you think this is about a a king or a president or a pastor, there's more to it than that. First of all, all of us need to live like the king. All of us need to live in relationship to God like David is charging for himself to live right now because we are all children of the king if we are in Christ. We are princes and princesses. Because we belong to Jesus, we've been grafted into his family. So this charge is for us. It's not just for the king or leaders or rulers. Now, knowing that our leaders are sinful... We are all sinful, we are gonna fail. But our leaders are not meant to be, hey, this is the perfect leader. Our leaders are meant to point us to whom? The perfect leader in Christ. So that's our first layer. All of us need to be a part of this group. Second thing we need to understand is that all of us, many of us are leaders. And the Bible's very clear, leaders are held to a higher standard. First Timothy chapter three and multiple other places whether you're leading in a small group, a family, whether you're leading a group of two people at a workplace, whether you're on leadership here at the church, we are all held to a higher standard. And finally, there's a third layer, which is only gonna address a few of us in this room. And that layer is for the men in the room. This passage is especially challenging for men, married men specifically, fathers, Men who want to be married one day. Men are called to be leaders in ministry. Men are called to do the difficult job of leading. It's the goal of each man. Now I understand there's all sorts of mixed families. We've got families that are led by women. We've got families that are led by grandparents. We've got families that don't have any connection to family, actual relatives. I get that. But the picture in the Bible is of a husband leading his family. This is the place that families flourish when the man is doing the job he's called to do. A family will not flourish if the husband does not see his role rightly. Now, don't go off and say, Pastor John said the, king, the, 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 the dad is the king, so everybody needs to bow down to him, right? I can just imagine in your minds, you're sitting there on your chair and being fanned by your kids while your wife feeds you grapes. That's not the picture we see here because David's picture is one of service. It's one of being the chief servant. He's prioritizing things in the same way that the king that he is imitating prioritized things. Because what did Jesus come to do? He came to be served because he was King Jesus. No, he came to be a servant. And men, that's what we're called to be. So there are three layers to this. There's the layer that all of us are a part of God's family. So we're grafted in. We're prince and princesses if we're his. So we need to act like it. Secondly, many of you are in leadership. You're held to a higher standard. Here's the standard. And then finally, men, you're called to lead. You need to get about the job of leading. All right. That was the easy part. Let's keep going. So what's the context of this psalm? Well, all we know about this psalm is David wrote it. That's all we know. There's nothing else in here. There's no little pointers to where it is. I tend to think that this was either right before Saul's death or right after that David wrote this. So this is very early in his time as a king. Well, definitely as the anointed one. And if you think about it, even if it's written later in his life, David is going through and he's saying, I don't want to be like Saul. Saul was a bad king. Saul was a selfish king. Saul was a king that had God's blessing on him for just a short amount of time, and then it was gone because of all the things he did. And so David is going, I don't want to be that kind of king. Why does Israel even have a king? Isn't God their king? Well, yes, actually he is. But if you remember, the Israelites were like, oh man, all the other nations have kings. Why can't we have one? And God tells Samuel, oh, you don't know what you're asking for. You're asking for all sorts of pain. You're asking for all sorts of problems. So David here is going, I don't want to be a bad king. I don't want to be that. If you look in Deuteronomy 17, there's actually a list of what the kings are supposed to do. And it matches up pretty well to what we see here. David's going, this is what I, I want to be a good king. And so he's going to lay out the structure for being a good king. And if only David had followed this his whole life, He would have been a great king. So let's get into it. The first point is David's worship. David's worship. This is his heart position. This is his relationship to God. Look at verse one. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will sing of God's love, his steadfast love. This is that Hebrew word, hesed, It's a word that we have to have a whole sentence to explain. It is the God-sized love that's not from us earning anything, but solely because of who God is and it never goes away. That's what that one word means. It's a very powerful word. We could do the whole sermon on that word. It's a vertical word. It's a word that says God loves me from up on high and I need to return that love to him. So the first thing he says is, I'm gonna sing about how great God's love is. The second thing he sings about is God's judgment. His judgment, his justice. This is a horizontal relationship as we look out at the world and we see bad things happening, we see things not going the way they're supposed to. He's saying, your judgment is good. Promoting justice. Now, if you think about it, in our world, what's right and wrong is based on polling. It's based on the waves of whatever's going on in our world right now. I mean, you can look at that. There are things now that people are championing that 10 years ago would have been considered criminal. And boy, it's gonna keep going that direction. See, this is why it's good that God is a judgmental God, a justice-seeking God, because he says, I am the standard. Instead of it being, you know, what's the standard? Instead, we have God saying, I am the standard. So God's love and his justice are the twin pillars of who he is. So what David is doing here is he's simply saying, I am putting myself into a correct relationship with you. That word bless um, that we see later on, and we'll see it throughout, is to kneel. It's to fall down at God's feet. We are to sing of his mercy and his justice and his love. And then finally, he says, I will make music. I will sing praise. Now, again, I want to point out for everyone in the room, it doesn't say make good music, all right? That means you can make country music, because we all know country music's terrible, right? <laughs> country music worship, I'm just kidding. Kinda. But it says, I will sing, I will make music. Doesn't say it has to be good doesn't say it has to be a five-part harmony. doesn't say any of that. It just says, I will sing. I will make music. So what we see here is David is a personal worship time. He has a time that he is singing out to the Lord. The king must connect to God if he's going to at all hope to connect his nation to God. Leaders connect to God, then they can lead others to God. Fathers connect to God so they can lead family to God. Mothers connect to God to lead their children to God, and so on and so forth. So a personal walk is key, and David lays that out there. He starts there. He doesn't start with, hey, I do all the things that gave, you know, that God told me to do. He goes, no, I have a personal relationship with God. Next, he gets into his walk. This is what he is accountable for. He's saying, I am accountable for my walking with the Lord. Verse 2, I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. So I want to do the middle of this verse first because it's kind of David just, again, showing his heart position. Oh, when will you come to me? This is a prayer. This is David going, I am utterly dependent on you. Without you, this isn't going to happen. And we need to understand that. Okay, so it's really easy to read verse 1 and be like, okay, David's worshiping. Now we're down to the list of things I have to do. Don't miss the fact that David says, if you are not in this, Lord, it's not going to happen. Oh, when will you come? David is longing for more and more of God because he knows the more of God that he sees, the more he can reflect God to those around him. This is what Spurgeon writes. If God be with us, we shall neither err in judgment nor transgress in character. His presence brings us both wisdom and holiness. So he's saying, be close to me because when you're close to God, he rubs off on you and you begin looking more and more like him. Okay, so now back to the start of verse 2. I will maintain pure feet. He says, I will ponder. That word ponder means to pay attention or to carefully think about. One translation says, I will study. So this is, again, this idea of I want to get my mind around the idea of blamelessness. And there's two parts to this. One is to focus on the holiness of God and go, I want to understand that. The other thing is to divert our attention from the wickedness of the world. David's saying, I'd rather not focus on the wickedness. I'd rather study the real thing. You know, treasury agents, when they are looking at counterfeit bills, they don't study the thousands of counterfeits out there. They study the real thing. They know what the bill feels like. They know how it feels, how it smells, how it crinkles, what it sounds like, so they know the real thing. And David is saying, I'm going to ponder, I'm going to think deeply on what is blameless, literally without defect. You know, Job was called blameless. This is the same Hebrew word that was used for Job. Can we pray like this? Can we pray, Lord, I want to think deeply about what is true, what is right? It means we need to give, us, give our best effort to try to understand this, but knowing we're gonna come up short and then the Lord is going to help us through it. He says, I will walk with integrity. I love the word integrity. Webster's 1828 definition is wholeness, entireness, purity, Genuine, unadulterated, unimpaired state of being. I love that. The word means, well, the word comes from the word integer, which means a total integration of one's life. So this idea of integrity means to have God's word saturate all of life. You know, at the end of the service today, I'm going to say something similar to what I've said every single time, and that is that the gospel is not for Today only, it's for all of life. An integrated life is the gospel, God's word, informs everything I do. From when I go to bed, when I wake up, from when I'm talking to the person at Chevron, to the person at Safeway, to wherever. It, it affects all of it. An integrated life is no area untouched by God's word. The word of God completely integrated. That means if we're integrated, By God's word, we're honest, we're sincere, we're incorruptible. There's no hypocrisy, there's no duplicity. You are, in private, who you claim to be in public. Life is integrated. Spurgeon says it this way. Piety, living holy, living living righteous, must begin at home. Our first duties are to those within our own abode. We must have perfect heart at home, or we cannot keep a perfect way abroad. Notice these words are a part of a song and that there is no music like the harmony of a gracious life, no psalm so sweet as the daily practice of holiness. Dear listener, how does it fare in your family? Do you sing in the choir and sin in the chamber? Are you a saint abroad but a devil at home? For shame, what we are at home is what we are indeed. See, David here, one of the things that's ironic is that I've been talking about David being the king, and so far, everything that he's talked about is all personal and private inside of him. It all starts with the interior before you can do the exterior. One author put it this way, the way to lead a blameless life is to lead a blameless life. So how does that make you feel? Thinking about who you are on your own. When no one else is around, when you're sitting there looking at your computer, your phone, when you're in the car and your mind begins to wander, the things that dwell in you, how does it make you feel? You feel bad? You feel shame? You feel guilt? I think we need to recognize that many of us don't measure up in our private lives like we pretend we do, in our public lives. So what do we do with that? Well, I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit because I'm gonna give you the solution right now because I want you to feel that pressure of what your private life is like and where your mind goes and whether you match up, but I also wanna give you the solution because I don't want you to miss it and I'm gonna say it a couple times. So we have two options on how to deal with what we feel like when we think about our private lives, when we think about who we are when we're by ourselves. We can deal with it, or we can have Christ deal with it. Which is it going to be? Many of us, we medicate ourselves to deal with our sin and our guilt and our shame. Sometimes, you know, we, we, we think things we shouldn't think. Sometimes we, we medicate it like David did. David tried to cover it up. Maybe we hide it. We delete our search history. We pretend it didn't happen. Other times, we do it through drugs and alcohol. We do things to numb the pain. But don't think you're getting off too easy if your search history's not bad or you aren't running to a bottle because everybody else deals with it too. Amazon, prime day, right? I'm gonna go spend money to make me feel better. I'm gonna go work out to make me feel better. I'm gonna have a good, fun time. I'm gonna live for the weekend, I'm gonna do something to take my mind off of my guilt and my shame. And the thing about it is, is if we try to get rid of our guilt and our shame and the fact that in private we are God awful sinners and we pretend to be something else in public, it will never go away. But praise be to God, there's another option. And that option is Jesus Christ. When he dies on the cross for your sins, the guilt is gone. The shame is gone. All you have to do is confess it to him. Take it to him. He knows. One of the Psalms I'm studying for in a couple of weeks, it says that he knows that we're dust. He knows what we are. He's experienced all of our weakness, and he's conquered it in our place. So take it to him. Don't take it to all this worldly stuff to try to deal with it. Take it to him. This doesn't matter if you're a leader or a follower. All of us need to take our shame and our guilt to Him. All right, back into the psalm. Verses three through five is the psalmist, is David telling us what integrity and blamelessness are not. Instead of trying to say, here's what integrity is, he goes, I'm going to tell you what it's not. Verse three, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Remember all that stuff we just talked about? All the things we try to take care of ourselves with? It's all worthless. Here, this word eyes doesn't mean literally your eyes, but it can be. It means your life aim, your objectives. And this is hard. How do we be in the world but not of it? How do we use the world but not be used by the world? This is what the psalmist is wrestling with. I will not set... The CSB translation says, I will not let anything worthless guide me. I think of all the worthlessness that we see on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and Fox News and MSNBC and CNN, and the list goes on and on. Worthless guides guiding us to worthlessness. I will not set anything worthless before my eyes. Literally, it, I will not set my eyes a worthlessness thing. Like it, it, the word worthless is a double worthless. He's saying super worthless. He's saying everything is super worthless. Matthew Henry says, a character of a good man is that he shuts his eyes from seeing evil. I will not set anything worthless before my eyes. Continuing in verse three, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. So the first thing we see is he says, I will maintain pure company. The people that are in my life are going to be pure. Now this is not saying we just get in the holy huddle and just hang out with Christians. But when you go to someone for advice, they need to have the fruit of the spirit in their life to speak into your life, not just because they have a thing on their wall that says they have a PhD or an MD or whatever, or that they have a following online. There are all sorts of people who will give you all sorts of really bad advice. If they're not showing the fruit of the Spirit that they're walking with the Lord, their advice is something we should be very skeptical of. And what David's saying here is he's going to avoid it. I hate the work of those who fall away. The literal Hebrew is the doing of swerving I hate, right? So the doing of swerving from the truth I hate, a lot of the translations differed on this verse. I'm going to read them to you. The New English says, I will not consider what doing what is dishonest. I'll have no part in it. NIV says, I will not approve of anything that is vile. I'll have no part in it. The New Living, I will refuse to look at anything vile and vulgar. I hate all who deal crookedly, and I will have absolutely nothing to do with them. David's point here is is don't go and seek the world's advice on how to solve problems. Instead, go to those who are not of this world. I will know nothing of evil. I will not know evil. This is not flirting with evil. It's not going up and poking evil and then backing away. It's saying I want nothing to do with it. If it's evil, it's not in my life. Now, I know I got to go be around people who are living in abject evil because I'm in the world and I'm going to tell them about Jesus. But in my life, I am doing all that I can to avoid evil. Spurgeon says, he who begins with his own heart begins at the fountainhead and is not likely to tolerate evil companions. See, the problem with this, we need to recognize, is that the problem with evil Yes, it's out there, but the reason why out there affects me so much is because the root in here is bad without Jesus. Without Christ in your life, your heart will cling to and want what is evil. Look at what Proverbs says. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for out of it flows the springs of life. Matthew has talked about this multiple times. For out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 15, but what comes out of a mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. See, the reason why David is saying, I don't want to be around evil, is he knows that the more he's around evil, the more the evil is going to come out of him. He's going to be more and more like it. We need to be very careful with our choice of who we allow into our lives as an intimate, as a friend. He will maintain pure company. Verse 5, he says, I will maintain pure ears. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart I will not endure. The message, I love this, I will put a gag on the gossips who badmouth their neighbors. Literally, he's going to tie a gag around their mouth. He says, I don't want anything to do with the slander that people are doing to each other. Not only that, he doesn't want to be around those who have a haughty and an arrogant heart. An arrogant heart literally means a wideness of heart. It's so full of self, it's proud. The opposite here is Humility. He says, I don't want to be around those who slander. A lot of times slander, you know, that's the idea of saying things about someone that's not true. Usually the slander is not just about pulling them down, but it's also about what? Pushing me up. And so the idea here is that he's saying, I I want to be around humble people. I'm not going to tolerate it. One commentator said, Christians have a responsibility not only to not slander, but not to listen to it. That might change how we stop listening to certain things in the world, don't we? We have a responsibility not only to not tell lies, but not tolerate liars. If you walk with the wise, you will be wise. If you walk with the conceited, you will become conceited yourself. I like this part. If you listen to the snake tongues, after a point, you will be the one with snake ears. Not only do you not have a responsibility to be friends with everyone, you actually have a responsibility to not be. I think that's pretty powerful. This idea of, I'm not going to have anything to do with these people speaking into my life because their works are evil. 1 Peter, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. So what we see here is we see David starts off with a time of worship. This is what God is like. And then he says, here is how I'm going to live my life. And it's all been very internally focused. And now he says, who am I going to pour my time and my effort into as the king? And we see David's workers. Verse 6, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. Now I want you to catch this here. David is the king. He lives in the palace it's, it's by nature separated from the commoners. It's by nature different. But David says, I'm going to find the faithful, and they're going to come in and move into my palace. They're going to dwell with me. Not only that, they're going to minister to me. Now, that's kind of a weird word. What it means is serve the king. And you're like, that doesn't sound like a treat. But you don't understand, the servants were cared for really well. They lived in the palace. They had the best food. They had all the amenities. They were never lacking. He says, I will only associate with those who are faithful. The New English translation says, I will favor the honest people of the land and allow them to live with me. So what does faithful mean? Well, I, I was thinking, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a trip that we took to Wyoming when I was in high school. And we saw old faithful. Faithful. And why is it called that? Because that spew of water is, you can t- you'd use your clock and you can time it. It's the same every time. It's dependable. You can set your watch by it. So a faithful Christian is dependable. It is the one not seeking their own glory. It's the one who does the grunt work. It's the one who serves. It's the one who says, it's not about me. It's about others. So how do you tell if someone's a good leader? Well, you look for those who are serving. I remember years ago, uh, we were at a church that didn't have its own building. And so every Sunday, we had to set everything up and tear everything down, which meant every Sunday there were lots and lots of chairs to be stacked and rolled away and put away. And you know how you could tell those men who were going to be godly leaders in other realms? They're the ones who jumped up and started stacking chairs. They're the ones who said, yes, fellowship is important, but there's work to be done. I need to serve somebody. And these people that did the setup for church every Sunday and the teardown, their names weren't up on the placard. They didn't get a round of applause. They just did it, and nobody saw it. But you're not a leader. You're not a servant if you go, nah, I don't do chairs. I don't move chairs. I've moved plenty in my time. Eh, That's not for me. That's somebody else. That's beneath me. That makes me mad because it's a sign of a selfish leader. It's a sign of a person who's not understanding what David is teaching here and is clearly not understanding that's not the Lord we serve. We don't serve Jesus rightly if we think it's all about us. Now I can hear in my mind what my pastor, elder, uh, my mentor telling me, hey, but you need to take care of the people. And I, I agree with that. But honestly, if you're not serving, you're not taking care of the people. Having a conversation here and there might be a good thing. But honestly, if you're not serving, you're not following the way you need to be. Because what does Mark 10.45 say? For even the Son of Man came not to serve not to be served, but to serve. Jesus would have cleaned the toilets. Jesus would have moved the chairs. And don't get me started, men. I told you guys, your men are getting it. Don't get me started, men, when there's work to be done and you stand around and watch the ladies do it. Now I know we got some pretty impressive ladies and they can totally do it. But men, they shouldn't have to. You should be the ones stepping up to be the ones to serve. That's what you're called to do. Okay, sorry, all right. Sorry, not sorry. He says, I will associate with the blameless. This word blameless is the word integrity, but there's really no way in English to kind of make this make sense. I will walk in the way that is blameless. I will only allow those who are integrity. So blameless here just means their lives match, private and public. They match. Because ultimately, David understands what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Bad company ruins good morals the friends and the people you follow are going to either bring you up or they're going to bring you down. He says, and they can minister to me. They can serve me. Verse 7, he says, I will only associate with the faultless. Verse 7 says, no one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. This word, this phrase, continue before my eyes is weird. Okay, what does that mean, continue before my eyes? What it means is guide me. So again, David is hitting this point over and over again. These people are not going to have a position to tell me where to go. I don't want those who are deceitful. I don't want those who are liars to be the ones who are speaking into my life. David does not want a liar in his sight, and neither does the Lord. Revelation 21, eight confirms that. So now, we've got this, David's only gonna work with certain people and they're only gonna be the ones that are gonna be speaking into his life. And then he finishes with verse eight. Now verse eight is a little off. It's a little different. It doesn't really fit where we've been so far. Because we've got David who's worshiping God and God is just and God is loving. And then he says, I am going to follow God this way. I'm gonna walk this blameless life of integrity. And then I'm going to surround myself with people who are going to do the same. And then, verse 8, David's warning. He says, morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Now, I tried. I tried really hard to find a definition way down in to change that word destroy. Destroy means destroy here. Cutting off actually means to wipe out and eliminate. So David is not mincing words here. We can't go and be like, well, but by destroy, he just means not platforming and they're just going to be on the outside. No, he's saying, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to utterly destroy them. My daily task will be to ferret out the wicked and free the city from their grip. He'll silence the wicked. He'll slay the evildoer. This isn't really harsh ending to this song, right? Maybe this is the part they would, you know, conveniently forget to sing. But Jerusalem is meant to be a holy city. It's a, a, a city that's supposed to be purged of ungodly men. And the judgment must start there. But here's the thing. David absolutely fails at this, doesn't he? I mean, he is who he's talking about right here. Who is the wicked? Who are the evildoers that were in the city of Jerusalem? It's David. That's where his home was. He failed to, take, to do justice to Ammon and Absalom, and he totally messed up with Israel. But worse than that, where was David when the whole Bathsheba and Uriah thing happened? In his palace in Jerusalem, Right? If you don't remember that story, Uriah's wife's name is Bathsheba. And while all the soldiers were off at war, David decided to stay home where he wasn't supposed to be. And he was outside of his palace looking down on the city and saw Bathsheba bathing. He asked her to come. Well, he didn't ask her. He commanded her to come to him, and he slept with her, and she became pregnant. So he brought Uriah, her husband, back from the war to try to cover up his adultery. It didn't work because Uriah was a man of God. And so Uriah was sent back to the front with a command from David leave Uriah in the front and everybody back away so that Uriah would die. David committed adultery, which started with lust, which started with him being in the wrong place. Then he, all sorts of lying and all sorts of confusion, and then he has a man murdered. So by David's own charge here in verse 8, he deserves to be annihilated. He deserves to be destroyed. Is David just the hypocrite of hypocrites? And it's not like it got any better with David's son Solomon. David's son Solomon was just as bad. But here's the thing. David and Solomon are not the last word on the kings of Israel. There is one king to come. There is one son of David who will hit the mark and has every right to stand up and annihilate the wicked. And that is Jesus Christ. See, we need to understand that our perspective must change when it comes to the sin that's in our lives. We are not trying to earn victory. We've already got the victory. Christ has already won. We need to make sure we continue to understand this. Yes, Psalm 101 is this high soaring David going, I'm gonna do all these great things and I'm not gonna be wicked. But we also have in our Bible Psalm 51, which is David broke it, wicked, everything that he said he wasn't going to do, he did. Recognizing that the wickedness is not outside of us, like this Psalm talks about, but it's right inside. We need to understand, as one author writes, the outward expressions of evil run right through the heart of every man or woman from our day of birth. And these two realities are portrayed in these two Psalms, Psalm 51 and Psalm 100, this is the seed of the gospel which provides the only solution. See, for David, there is no hope. He messed up, he deserves to be annihilated. But see, we live in a different time. We live post Acts chapter 2, and Acts chapter 2 is the best news. It's the second best news, okay? The best news is that Jesus died for our sins. The second best news is that Jesus sends a helper, the Holy Spirit, that third member of the Trinity that gets lost sometimes when we talk about what's going on. He sent him to be alongside us. As a matter of fact, the word parakletos, which is the word for the Holy Spirit, means one who comes alongside. Now, I don't think comes alongside like we're just kind of hanging out next to each other. Really, honestly, I think he's holding us up and dragging us sometimes. But he's right there next to you, he's helping you walk. The second thing about the Holy Spirit we need to understand that David didn't have, but we have, is that the Holy Spirit's here to stay. In the Old Testament, there were times that the Spirit poured out power, but John 14, 16, Jesus says, he will give you another helper. God will give you another helper to be with you forever. There is a helper. All we need to do is ask. We don't have to medicate. We don't have to deal with it on our own. We have a helper who's not far off. He's right there alongside you, and he's there forever. Third, the Holy Spirit reminds us what Jesus taught. And this is the biggest problem we have. We forget. John 15 says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. See, David didn't have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. Or more importantly, he has us. When we become Followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we surrender to his lordship, not only do we get our sins forgiven, that's amazing, that's the greatest news, but we get Jesus' perfect life in our place. That's the greatest news as well. And then he doesn't go, good luck with it, try to follow me. No, he sends his spirit, and his spirit lives inside of us, comes alongside of us and says, I'm gonna help you do this. Because we need to remember that We never praise the Lord better than when we do the things which are pleasing in His sight. So the Spirit comes along, and that Spirit gives us the opportunity and the ability to have integrity. Because that's what the Spirit does. He puts everything together so that we can have a relationship with God. He leads us not only to want integrity, but to love it. One author writes, the more one grows in Christ and journeys through this world in communion with Christ, the deeper one's desire to be an integrated human will be, to bring into alignment our passions, our words, our thoughts, our finances, and so on and so on. The psalmist's desire is found in verse two. "Oh, when will you come to me?" David, needed help. You guys, we have that help. The Holy Spirit is here. The answer to David's prayer, when will you come to me, was Acts chapter 2, which, praise be to God, was nearly 2,000 years in our rearview mirror, which means he's here now. He is the one we need to have inside of us so we can live out what David is talking about. We need help keeping our eyes focused on him. We spend too much time focusing on the world. We must focus on him. We need to start our days like David did in this psalm with worship, worship and then fall into our beds at night with thanksgiving and praise, keeping our eyes on him. The helper is here to help. And when we do this, all of this chaos, this disordered lives, because really we live these non-integrated lives where we've got, we're going this way with my Jesus thoughts and then we're going this way with my world thoughts and it's chaotic, it's disordered. The Holy Spirit brings it back into order. The Holy Spirit brings it together so that we can be just like the king that David wanted to be. One who walks blamelessly, one who lives a life of integrity, one who surrounds himself or herself with people who speak truth and they you speak truth into their lives because you're pointing them to the one true king. And this is only possible because of what Jesus did on the cross in our place. So today is the day. The Holy Spirit's there. He wants to help. All we need to do is ask. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the many promises you've given us. Thank you for being a God that keeps his promises. Lord, we love that you've done that. We love that your promise is that your spirit will give us the power the ability to obey and follow your commands. You didn't set up some impossible standard that we couldn't meet and then tried to get us to get it on our own, but instead you set it up so that you could help us get it. Lord, help us to be like your son. Help us to serve, to love and be all the things that we should be, that you made us to be. Help us to live that life through the power of your Spirit. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.